When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. What's the greatest threat to free expression today? I'm joined by Suzanne Nossel, the Chief Executive Officer of PEN America, the leading human rights and free expression organization. Previously, Nossel worked in government, as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations and the Deputy to the U.S. Ambassador for the U.N. She graduated from both Harvard College and Harvard Law School and is a frequent contributor to national magazines on the issues of free speech. Today, I'm very excited to welcome a special guest, Suzanne Nossel, who is the CEO of PEN America, P-E-N America, not the university, but the writers' organization, of which I'm also a member. So, Suzanne, I'm really, really grateful and happy that you're taking the time to talk with me today on Unmuted, this podcast on free speech and all of its manifestations and repercussions. And as the CEO of Penn, you've been really engaged in this issue, and your organization has issued a long, extensive report on speech on campus. But I wanted to start out by asking you, when, when you have your coffee in the morning and you think... What are the things we need to address as a, an organization that's defending freedom of expression when you get up in the, in the morning? What is, what is on your mind as the biggest issues facing this organization or that the, where the organization can help? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. You know, it's, I think it's a pretty frightening time for free expression in this country and around the world because things are changing so quickly. I mean, in terms of top threats on my mind uh, as I lay in bed at night, you know, I'd say one of the uh, foremost is definitely President Trump's attacks on the media and his relentless promulgation of this idea that the mainstream media amounts to fraudulent news, that it can't be trusted, that it's deliberately misleading the American public. And, you know, for many of us who read The New York Times and watch CNN, uh, you know, we know that's nonsense. And we know we can take the Washington Post seriously. We know the standards that they put into their reporting, how careful they are. Yes, they can make mistakes, but they're serious news organizations. But there's a segment of the population that really appears to be buying into this and that believes that they cannot trust what major news outlets are telling them they're turning to alternative outlets that don't uphold traditional standards of reporting and verification that in some cases are really propaganda outlets. And I think the president has created an enormous amount of confusion around this deliberately because I think he is trying to lay the groundwork for a future situation which you know, the press's accusations or the accusations, say, coming out of the Mueller investigation or some other source uh, are reported in the press, and he wants to set the stage so he can discredit that as necessary and as he, he does routinely. So I think this idea that a whole segment of the U.S. population is genuinely confused about what can be trusted and is turning to media outlets that do not uphold standards, I think that's dangerous for our discourse. And that's interesting that you identify that as a real 
real deep concern for democracy, that the freedom of the press is one thing, even if it's guaranteed, there's a way to undermine trust in the press and the kind of trust that people have that some people actually have done the work to establish facts, to verify them and to present them. So it's not that this is a direct kind of infringement or direct censorship of people not being able or allowed to publish something, but rather that the public has... It's, do you think the public, there's, you're saying there's a one part of the public that keeps on reading the Washington Post and New York Times and knows that it's reliable, reliable sources, and another part that's starting to think, well, this may not be true. This may just be an unfair attack on, on, on the president. He may be right that this is fake news. Yeah, they stop reading it entirely, and they turn only to sources that are deeply rooted in a single political tradition or that are purveying conspiracy theories, falsehoods. And, you know, you're right in that we can't attack this under the First Amendment. I mean, the First Amendment protects his right to say what he wants, you know, as long as it falls short of threats or other categories that are exceptions to the First Amendment. These media outlets are free to publish what they want, you know, as long as it's short of defamation or libel, which often it is. And so the traditional tools to uphold freedom of speech, open discourse, fact-based discourse don't really work here. We have to look toward other tactics. How do we inform people so to make them more discerning consumers of news so that they're more conscientious in what they absorb? How do we start conversations across these political divides so people get out of their echo chamber and start hearing from the other side? So it's a much more complicated problem to solve than kind of straightforward censorship, which would be unlawful under the First Amendment, and you'd simply challenge and in a lawsuit. I know you're a trained lawyer and sort of say we would simply challenge it in a lawsuit, but this even wouldn't guarantee it would necessarily stop because we know there could be laws, there could be even people breaking the laws, and if someone still wants to dispute or if if the president uses his power, this is a great challenge in some ways. We would, shouldn't look forward to a case where, oh, yeah, then we can bring a lawsuit against him. <laughs> since No, that's true. So. I mean, it's no guarantee. I mean, I think there's a sense that the courts, you know, in some instances have vindicated themselves well in terms of upholding the Constitution against threats over the last 18 months. But, you know, we're having this discussion a day after the Supreme Court's decision in the Muslim ban case. And, we as PEN America brought together a group of about 35 different arts organizations to file an amicus brief in that case, arguing that the Muslim ban interferes with the First Amendment right to receive and impart information, which under Supreme Court precedents includes the right to in-person exchange, so cultural exchange, bringing people from around the world here to talk to Americans, for Americans to have the opportunity to hear from them. I mean, this is not the core of the legal argument in the Muslim ban case, but it was just another example of the kind of discourse that is impaired when these barriers are put up. And, and so we're very d disappointed by that decision. And you're absolutely right. It's not that I have full confidence in the courts. That's, you know, that is sort of the more traditional mechanism in terms of upholding freedom of expression and freedom of speech in this country. So for an organization like ours, we're forced to think broadly and in new ways about how to meet challenges that don't fit into that box. Right. This is interesting. You point out you're an organization of writers whose work really is a lot of them are nonfiction writers, but also fiction writers who have a different approach to the truth. I actually write both fiction and nonfiction. I don't think fiction writers make up things in a way that's not truthful. They tell the truth in different ways. So what's the concern of people in your organization? Because even if we're saying legally they can't be censored or they can't be suppressed. But there's this great erosion of trust in what people do in this entire this profession, including journalists, including academics, including writers. How do you counter that? How do you or how do you even reframe the debate if invoking the First Amendment doesn't solve this issue right now? You know, it's difficult. I mean, I think a couple of things that we focused on, one is we've set out a news consumers bill of rights and responsibilities talking about what news organizations, online platforms need to do to uphold that set of rights. So things like transparency, explaining what their processes are, how reporters do their work, where information comes from, how it's verified, sourcing practices, anonymous sourcing, corrections, all those things. We're now in the process of creating a transparency tracker. So we've collected information from dozens of different newsrooms so that we can stack up and see who is upholding these obligations of a news organization toward the news consumer. But the other part of it is the news consumer's responsibilities, because we can't put this all on news organizations or even on platforms like Google and Facebook. And, you know, they are doing more to 
try to flag fraudulent and misleading content, to label political content, uh, to scrutinize where that content comes from. You know, it's very opaque. It's algorithmically driven. They're not transparent. There's an enormous, you know, we, we what we don't know about right. how they're, they're doing this. They're private companies who don't yes. have this obligation to actually, if you can ask them to have transparency and uh, fact-checking in this, and we, we are selling certain things to consumers, right? <laughs> no, that's right. And that's where the consumer really comes in because it's only through pressure and scrutiny from consumers that they're going to change their methods and become more transparent. It's only through conscientious habits of consumption so that somebody's really thinking through. You know, I see something in my Facebook feed. It sounds outlandish and outrageous. You know, I could post this and get a lot of emojis in response, and that could be really exciting for me. But on the other hand, maybe I ought to reconsider. Maybe this is false. You know, maybe, uh, you know, what they said this person did didn't actually happen. Maybe this is not a story worth sharing. Maybe I should find out a little more, see if I can confirm this elsewhere, take a look at what sources are quoted, take a look at the author of this article. So, you know, that's a lot to ask of a news consumer, especially in a moment when we're all flooded with news from so many different sources. But if we don't, you know, when we were children, you know, you learned how to read with magazines, newspapers, something that was called the encyclopedia. And those were all vetted sources. They went through layers of editing, publishing, copy editing, and review. Now uh, a kid growing up is digesting information, you know, amid this this flowing sea. Uh, it can come from anywhere. Much of it is unvetted. So one thing I do think is critical is educating our kids about how to navigate that vast ocean of information and understand what they're wading through. It's really interesting you bring up that how to educate people to assess whether information is truthful or reliable or whether actually we don't know and it's worth investigating or whether some ideas are already settled and they're just nonsense and one shouldn't participate in promoting them further. This touches upon one of the things I'm interested in, and you've you've talked about a lot, and you've written about for the Washington Post, for other outlets, and and I really liked what you've said about the situation on in universities, which is another site that I think is really under attack because it is a culture of expertise and an institution that is actually respects facts and knowledge and is pursuing a version of the truth, and I think this is a very severe attack on, as you said, the press and also on academia. And in academia, as you know really well, because you've issued this report and you've written about it, we have um, speech controversies. How do you approach those? And you've been very nuanced, I think, in sort of identifying them, not saying because they've been framed as there's a free speech controversy, meaning someone is challenging free speech and we must just have free speech on campus. I think over the year we've learned maybe that's a bit too simplistic as a framing. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we got involved in the campus speech debate out of a concern that there were two sides kind of talking past each other. On the one hand, you had, especially in some of the earliest controversies just a couple of years ago that flared up at the University of Missouri, where you had a whole spate of racial incidents. There was a critique of the administration there that they weren't doing enough to respond. The football team went on strike, which at the University of Missouri, you know, basically uh, has the power to shut the place down. And the president and, resigned. Yeah. Within days, the administration had resigned. And it was and just... someone went on a hunger strike. Right? Yes, so there, there was, was a graduate student who went on a hunger strike. So it was this... a very severe situation in a way for campus to be so fractured, right, over yes. which some people said there's just a bunch of, you know, fools uh, who are spreading some venom and it's okay, it's just hate speech. But the campus community actually rose up and said this is intolerable and it doesn't allow us to be in this university in the right way. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, another controversy right at the same time was at Yale University over this memo that the administration issued guiding students about Halloween costumes that could be offensive and suggesting that they not wear sombreros and, you know, other kinds of costumes that could land the wrong way with certain groups of students. And then there was a dean of one of the residential colleges who wrote kind of a counter memo saying this is patronizing, infantilizing, students should navigate this on their own. You know, if they offend one another, that's sort of part of the college experience. We shouldn't be trying to ban and sanction this. And you know, what we heard at the time, which is when we kind of first got involved, was the two sides really talking past each other. There were advocates of greater racial inclusion and equality on campus who were bringing up some legitimate demands and concerns and calls for change. And then on the flip side, 
uh, staunch advocates of free expression who are saying, you know, you're calling for people to be punished for speech. You know, these reactions are overwrought. You know, this speech needs to be protected. And the argument that we have made consistently is that the university does need to become more diverse, inclusive, and equal. These institutions, you know, were created in a different era for a different population of students. The demographics of the United States are changing rapidly already. In our student population, there is no single ethnic majority. It's no, it's no longer majority white. That will happen and be true of our society at large in a couple of decades. So we're dealing with a very different demographic on campus. It's also true that a rising generation of students is asking for and pushing for new levels of equality that weren't really on the table even, you know, 20, 25 years ago. You know, back then it was about admissions and numbers and bringing more African-American, Latino students into the university. And now it's about how they can really be full 100 percent participants with a sense of belonging without feeling like they have to fit into a culture that, you know, belongs to somebody else or change or adapt themselves in order to feel included. And it's can our I, view. Can I just sorry? Can I just sure, add something? Sure. I really I really appreciate that you, uh, you're framing it in this way and that you bring up equality as an issue. And then your report initially, I think, was titled On Campus for All Diversity, Inclusion and Free Speech. I think the equality piece is an important one for two reasons. It's a legal concept that we recognize in America. It's also a constitutional concept in the 14th Amendment and the Declaration. So it adds something to a conversation that, as you said, has been framed in these kind of unhelpful ways as students on one side being offended and wanting to be feel included, but it's about feelings. But you're saying it's also about equality, which is a an educational principle, it's a political principle, and it's also the legal requirement. It's a right, yeah. It's a right. And that actually changes the conversation a bit, a bit because I think at Yale and at Middlebury or at Berkeley, a lot of people had the impression this is just a bunch of sensitive students who can't handle speech that they don't agree with. And you're saying that actually equality is another component of this, where students are saying we we deserve to be at this campus. We've been admitted, we've qualified, but we're still not being treated or we're not given the structures that actually allow us to participate as equal citizens of this community. So do you think that's a tension or have have when you've thought about these controversies, is there a way to resolve this and bring these people together to sort of talk and say, because you do have free speech advocates, sometimes self-styled absolutists. I've talked to lots of people who have been aggrieved that Yale reacted this way. They have been very, very distraught that Yale renamed a college. And I checked yesterday, Yale is still standing. The institution is still there. Peter Salovey is doing well as president. <laughs> so somehow when those people feared this would be the end of civilization, it didn't quite happen yet. Yeah. I mean, we argue that the university has this obligation to uphold principles of equality and inclusion, but that it can and must do so without compromising robust protections for free speech and academic freedom. So we really reject the idea that these two impetuses are pitted against each other, that you've got to trade one for the other. And, you know, sometimes it does manifest in that way. I mean, you know, we certainly have seen among student and faculty advocates for greater inclusion and social justice calls to ban and punish speech. Sometimes... You know, that happens. They say so-and-so shouldn't be invited to campus, needs to be disinvited from campus, that certain posters should be taken down if they're offensive, messages written in chalk, cleared away because they make people feel harmed, unsafe is often a word that comes up, you know, emotionally harmed. And, you know, what we argue is that those feelings of emotional harm can be real. We shouldn't dismiss them. Your know, speech can cause harm. And I think denying that is a mistake for free speech advocates because I think it's it just doesn't hold up the notion that, you know, it's only words, speech can't cause harm. You know, but at the same time, you know, really pressing the argument that punishing and banning speech is not the right answer that we do. We don't want to give our universities the power to do that, that if we do so, you know, they will be in our government, will be in the position, you know, public universities at least, of picking and choosing, you know, what speech isn't permitted and what speech isn't. You know, if we say that a university should cancel a lecture by a Charles Murray or a Ben Shapiro 
that even if that person has been duly invited by, let's say, a student organization or an academic department that has the power and the authority to issue such an invitation and to convene a lecture and bring that person to campus, if we ask the administration to intervene and cancel that lecture, you know, in effect, we're depriving the departments and the student organizations of the power and the discretion to issue those invitations. So what happens then? Is there a sort of a permitted and a banned list of who you can and can't invite? Do you have to get every invitation approved by the university so, administration before you issue it? You know, I think that would really impair the climate for speech on campus. And, you know, our argument is, you know, even if you hate having Charles Murray, you're better off protesting, making your arguments in a peaceful way, and then holding on to your own freedom to invite who you want. It's interesting that you bring up these student invitations. I think what's interesting when we look at student-issued invitations and private universities, where you don't have the First Amendment right away, I think what's really important is to think this through in the private university because there we can learn how to behave as a society. We don't have this strict mandate. I think public universities are in a, in a different position. They have a much more kind of narrow range of options. But a private university could say, okay, so someone is inviting a speaker. There is a part of that invitation is say, you are participating in this community. What is the purpose? What are you advancing? And I'm kind of interested if someone invites somebody who doesn't advance knowledge or understanding, but really comes to provoke and really spew some vitriol or racist hatred, which may not be one of those people you identify. And then other people are not invited to universities all the time. So I work in a university, and of course, on a daily basis, people would love to give a lecture here, and I just ignore them or turn them down, and they never come with the ACLU or the power of pen behind them and say, I'm an expert in constitutional law, which I believe I'm not, and I would love to speak at the Yale Law School tomorrow. I will not get you behind me to defend me. But if I actually come in and say, I have this really... Um, incredibly important idea about white supremacy and that certain people shouldn't be in America. Somehow, there seems to be a bit, or there seemed to be a bit of a tendency of liberal organizations to say, we must defend this person's right to speech. Whereas all sorts of other things, you know, scientific kooks, armchair astronomers, they don't get invited to the university every day. So I think the students are saying, isn't there a different principle here that the university goes out of its way to make this great case for especially racist or offensive speakers to come, but they don't even pay attention about all sorts of other people who want to come. Well, a few things. First of all, there's a big difference between invitations and disinvitations. So most universities, public and private, have this kind of liberal policy where virtually any campus department uh, or student organization is free to invite who they want. They could book a room, their time, place, and manner rules. But apart from that, you know, when it comes to viewpoint, they have full discretion. And so what happens in these cases, this is not, we do not see university administrations inviting the likes of a Milo Yiannopoulos or an Ann Coulter to campus or giving them an honorary degree. That's not what's happening. What's happening is student organizations, typically uh, conservative organizations, are inviting these speakers. In some cases, you know, for example, at the University of California at Berkeley, you know, when we talked to students, we did a convening there with uh, the provost and faculty and students, student leaders, First Amendment experts, and the conservative students were very honest about saying that, you know, that's a very liberal campus. There's a lot of uh, students of color, faculty of color. You know, it's not a place with a legacy of slavery like UVA, Charlottesville. You know, it's one of the most, you know, probably one of the most inclusive it, campuses in the country. Was, and, it was a majority, majority campus, I think, in 1988. I went there as a freshman, and I think it was the first year when white students were not the majority. And... It was a big talk for one moment, and then everybody moved on. So it's right. for about 35 years or 40 years almost, it's been a majority-minority campus. Right, in the yeah. most diverse state in the union. But the conservative students, you know, feel quite ideologically marginalized. They told us it's hard to get a faculty advisor for their clubs. It can be difficult to get an academic department to co-sponsor an event. And if you can't get that co-sponsorship, it's hard to book a room. And it was that sense of being kind of marginalized and excluded that prompted them to, you know, from what I understand, mount this very aggressive gesture in scheduling so-called free speech week and inviting Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter and others to campus with the purpose of proving that they could, pointing out, look, this is a public university. We are entitled to have whoever we want. We know this is someone you're not going to like. We know this is going to test the principle, as indeed it did, because the university... You know, at one point, 
put on all kinds of restrictions about when and where the event could be held to the point where it was almost impossible to pull off the kind of event that they envisioned with a significant audience and a big auditorium. And, you know, now there's a lawsuit. The university has, I think, taken a much more constructive approach in recognizing, actually, you know, the better thing to do is let the event go forward, let the protests go forward, don't give the likes of a provocateur grounds to mount a lawsuit, to go out to their supporters and say, I've been suppressed, I've been silenced, you know, send me your donations to grandstand. So I think the university is now taking a much more constructive approach. But you can understand why the controversy erupted. But I think the university to sort of take the position that they're going to, whether it's public or private, withhold this discretion from their academic departments and their student organizations and say, look, there's some people whose ideas are discredited and, and we're going to tell you who you can and can't invite because, you know, we know what the truth is. You know, of course, there are discredited ideas, people who challenge the validity of Climate change, for example, is one thing that comes up. You know, do those people have any role speaking on campus? And, you know, generally speaking, they're not invited because, you know, whether it's an academic department or a student organization, they're serious. They're in a quest for knowledge. They want to have people who will enlighten them. They're, you know, and there are all kinds of, you know, we only hear about the Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulters. There's thousands and thousands of people, you know, the obscure constitutional scholar or whoever it is, speaking on <laughs> campus day in, day out. Even the college Republicans at Berkeley, they told us, you know, normally we have a state senator come. We have a councilman. You know, they have all kinds of routine events and speakers, and that just doesn't generate the headlines. You know, we focus on these provocateurs. That's the point that they're trying to make. But the better approach, I think, is not to silence and not to deprive them of the discretion. It's absolutely right to, you know, if you're in one of these clubs or you are a student leader, to ask yourself the question, what am I doing and why? I think I think that is actually part of the educational enterprise, to ask those student groups as well. And all student groups, they're given money and sort of saying you can invite somebody, they're giving this, given this license. Of course, there's always a sentence in there somewhere in, you know, to further the mission of the university at large. You don't just invite a circus act because you feel like having that person on campus, you know. It's, so they're testing the limits of speech there. They feel they have a victory. The students, I think, feel, because of the current political climate, that something has changed. So as we know, Jeff Sessions, the Justice Department, and also the president actually commented on those controversies and said, we will withhold federal funding from these universities if they don't let certain people speak. So you have the government, to go back to our earlier part, the government directly intervening in these debates, not by issuing some kind of decree or sending in you know, the police forces, but by making a comment and saying, if the university doesn't allow these people, we threaten to withhold federal funding. Whether they are capable of doing that, whether that's possible, we don't know, but it would be it's a very uncomfortable thing for a university. And then the students say, you're bringing this conservative speaker. The president of our country is actually making a case only for the conservative speaker. And we don't trust that the administration isn't bringing them because they kind of want this message to be on campus occasionally. Every year or so, we want somebody who really thinks that women shouldn't be at our university or minority groups shouldn't be at our university. It really makes an, an, an argument against equality that's so fundamental about group belonging. So how do you, how do you reestablish the trust that the students are questioning their administration and the country's administration to say, these are just fringe ideas. This is just ex some extreme racist or somebody who comes for one day, usually all of a counter event somewhere, and then let's move on. Well, it's become much harder. You know, when we first started doing this work just less than two years ago, you know, and you talked about safe spaces, you know, it was about trying to make campuses psychologically safe or emotionally safe. And, you know, there was a very kind of potent argument, look, uh, you know, that's not what the university is intended to be. You're supposed to confront things that may make you uncomfortable, be offensive, really challenge you. But we now have the issue of physical safety much more on the table. You know, we've had uh, a murder at the University of Maryland at College Park. We had the white supremacist protests at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, leading to the death of a protester. We've had nooses hung in trees around campuses. We've had a spike in white supremacist activity and incidents. And so students can, you know, much more, I think, justifiably say, you know, this campus feels, you know, not just emotionally unsafe, but perhaps physically unsafe. And we also have a, a White House administration that is often condoning the behavior of white supremacists, associating with them, taking actions that are 
targeting minority groups, whether it's the Muslim ban or the ban on transgender troops or the treatment of immigrants at the border and the impact that that has on undocumented students on campus. And so it's become kind of a much more menacing environment. And I think in that context, hateful speech is more sharp and pointed. You know, the impact, it's harder to dismiss. You can't say, you know, this is just sort of one random individual when you know the person in the White House, you know, might agree with him or might have said something similar. And so I think that absolutely frames the context and it makes it even more important as a free expression advocate to take these concerns seriously, hear them out, push for measures to ensure that students are included, protected in terms of physical safety, that, you know, they have ways of organizing and associating that empower them, that they can get their own messages out. You know, to just focus on kind of narrowly on infringements of speech, I think it can backfire, actually. I mean, one thing we hear from students, you know, is I kind of have never forgotten this African-American student leader from the University of Missouri who at one of our earliest convenings on this topic, she was asked, well, if the university were to withdraw an invitation from a campus speaker, would you have concerns under the First Amendment? And she said, the First Amendment wasn't written for me. And I thought, wow, you know, as a law graduate, I'd never heard someone say, you know, the First Amendment wasn't written for me. And by that, she meant two things. One is that At the time the First Amendment was written, her forebears would have been considered three-fifths of a person because they were African-American. They might have been slaves at the time. And so they, you know, when rights were being handed out and guaranteed, they would not have been sitting there at the table. But she also meant something else, which is that when the First Amendment gets invoked on campus in her hearing, it was consistently to defend speech that was offensive to minority groups targeting particular vulnerable populations. And when you hear it invoked time and time again in that way and only in that way, I can sort of understand why you might think the First Amendment wasn't written for me. So if we don't start making a broader argument and taking these concerns seriously, I think there's a real risk that a rising generation of students of color and leaders of color and progressives feel alienated from the values of the First Amendment. I think that's very dangerous. And as you said, ironically, that I do find that a bit ironic to say that, and I understand that the Republican students at Berkeley feel they're in the minority, that they feel marginalized, sounds very strange probably to students who feel we are marginalized and targeted in our communities systematically. I think part of what you brought up is the University of Missouri events, which are really driven by Black Lives Matter and inescapability for mainstream and white America to ignore certain things because of social media, because you cannot look away anymore. You know, police killings used to be things that people just denied. They didn't happen. They didn't exist. The police said it didn't happen this way. And now you can watch them and you see people being executed in the street. And I think that has actually changed something, that there's a kind of adding to what you said, the demographic shifts and People sense we belong here. We have every right to be equal participants in this university. And also we can demonstrate that this country or some things are not quite working and you can't just look away anymore. So I think social media and Black Lives Matter has used social media to sort of bring an awareness of racial disparities into into the conversation that has really changed that. When a student says the First Amendment isn't written for me, will it help them to, you know, read a book on the First Amendment, say, no, actually, yes, you're right, you weren't citizens then, just like women were not included in the First Amendment. It took the 14th Amendment for the Supreme Court to apply it the first time in 1919. And then they may also say, yeah, but the First Amendment has some carve-outs. The First Amendment doesn't protect blanket speech everywhere. It's not an absolute doctrine in this way. We protect commercial interests. As we know, there are certain exceptions, libel, defamation, you know, certain types of obscenity, direct threats. And I think the students think if you didn't permit violent racists to come to campus, you wouldn't have permitted the march on the University of Virginia grounds. Nothing would have been lost for America. They're saying we would be in a better country, not a worse country. We wouldn't be in a country without a constitution anymore. So they're actually challenging us to think, are we in the best possible way in our jurisprudence, how we decide these things? No, that's true. And... I think there is a sense that this speech, you know, really does more 
harm than good. There's no reason to protect it. But what we have found when we you bring these students together with First Amendment experts, with faculty, with administrators, we've had now a series of four sit-down symposia at UC Berkeley, Middlebury College in Vermont, where there was an incident over appearance by Charles Murray, University of Maryland, and UVA Charlottesville. And in each case, you know, when you get into the depths of the argument, those student leaders, they do understand the value of the First Amendment, and they like the idea of free speech, and they do want to see it protected, and they recognize that there are risks in empowering authorities to draw these lines. You know, and the point gets made about historically, speak, you know, you're talking about, well, somebody's just a provocateur. They don't have any valuable ideas or opinions to add to the argument. You know, at one point, uh, someone brought up, you know, Martin Luther King was looked at in that way and, you know, might have been excluded from a campus on that basis. I think, you know, where violence is involved, it's easier to draw a line, meaning physical violence. And I think that's appropriate and universities can and do. You know, that crosses over into a threat and threats are not protected, true threats under the First Amendment. I think what is problematic, though, is to, and some people do this, equate speech and violence, to say your speech can constitute violence. Because I think the minute you say that, I say that, you know, your offense to me is an act of violence, then I am justified in responding violently. I can punch you in the nose well, if your speech was an act of violence I, against me. I, I understand, uh, and you represent part of an organization of writers, so in some ways when people say words are violence, actually it's interesting, a lot of them say this is a conflation of concepts. But I think the element that people have brought into this conversation is power. And they say it is very different for one person to use an epithet or to hurl insults at, a, at, at an individual if it comes from a group that has disproportionate power. And, you know, you wrote a book about women in the legal profession, right? Uh, it's called Presumed Equal. Is yes. that right? right? Yes. So, so you're aware of these kinds of, you know, realities that play out. So if you're in a big corporate law firm and you're the one woman or you're on a trading floor or something like that or you're in a classroom and people actually say really demeaning, insulting things about women, even if they're subtle and just words, it can produce a situation which is, uh, which in the workplace would be considered discriminatory or unequal, and in a classroom can also silence people in the wrong way, so it goes against the spirit of the university. So I understand that you don't want to conflate simply words and violence, but when power is behind words, doesn't it have an impact that the university has to take into consideration to just allow for learning to take place? No, absolutely. And that's why I'm very clear that words can cause harm. They can cause psychological mm -hmm. harm. They can impair academic performance. You know, we recognize that readily in the context of bullying, you know, that words, bullying often, you know, really centers on damaging, harmful words. So I think that's absolutely to be taken seriously. But I'd kind of draw the line at conflating speech and violence, because I think that argument really has a potential to escalate conflict and kind of justify anything in response. I mean, look at, you know, these these violent protesters that have amassed. And, you know, in some cases, it's from the left. It's violent protesters on the left responding to speakers who've been invited to campus. And, you know, and they come loaded for bear. They might be Arm. They've resulted. Their presence has resulted in some cases, including at Berkeley, in significant property damage and some injuries. And so, I think you know that's the problem. It's you know the idea that someone just coming to campus can constitute a provocation that justifies violence. I think that's a very dangerous idea in our country. I'm absolutely for protest and counter speech, and you know the necessity for the university to uphold the rights of those who want to have their say you know, forcefully, visibly, you know, and in ways that even some level of disruption can be appropriate, not disruption that impairs someone from getting their message across and means that effectively they can't speak and they can't be heard. But, you know, there's a level of disruption that in the form of counter speech that I think can be appropriate and can be a much more constructive outlet for this. Can you say something about those legislative proposals in several state legislatures that are trying to impose mandatory penalties on students who, who, do, who engage in protests? The complication is that this protest is not really defined. So if an administrator feels, you know, I interrupted you four times, that's enough of a protest to expel me from the room. And if I do that twice in one semester, I have to be removed from the school for a year. That 
on the face of it looks to me like the government taking a very strong position on what speech is allowed and what speech isn't allowed, which comes entirely from Republican lawmakers or right-wing institutes who want to actually identify the student protest as the big problem on campus. So the Goldwater Institute or other organizations, how do you feel about those kind of legal measures that are trying presumably to ensure the level playing field or these this you know, metaphoric marketplace of idea that it could take place without interruption. Yeah. Well, look, I can understand why legislatures have become concerned with the climate on campus in terms of campus speech. But I think these legislative proposals, some of them are relatively harmless. You know, they essentially are hortatory in nature, just affirming free expression rights, calling out things like these free expression zones that limit the sphere of free speech to some small, single, specified zone on campus. You know, and that's inappropriate and an impairment of freedom of speech. So we would support that. But many of them go too far. Uh, You know, you talked about the proposals that would severely punish counter speech. It's also defined very vaguely. It's any speech that sort of interferes with somebody else's speech and who decides, you know, at what level, you know, it's not just my counter speech and it amounts to an interference with your speech. You know, that's a subjective call. And I'm very worried about trying to enshrine that kind of vague definition and line drawing in law. And then some of the proposals, you know, who decides is spelled out, and it's some kind of commission appointed by the governor. And I think that's a clear political power play where you are being driven by forces that want to elevate certain kinds of speech at the expense of others. They're concerned about what voices are being silenced. And, you know, it may be a valid concern because I do believe the campus needs to be truly open, not just to all people and people from different students from different backgrounds, but also to all ideas. And on some campuses, I think conservatives have a very valid and genuine point about not being fully included. But I don't think the right answer is to involve politicians and legislatures. I think one of the reasons that our academic system is the envy of the world is that we have tried to insulate it, even, and this is true, even at the public universities, from political interference. We have tenure, we have the concept of academic freedom, and I think this is a moment where we really need to uphold those principles, and that, you know, those who are arguing for free speech should be defending those principles and not empowering the legislature to intervene. Right, to to take recourse sort of in in politics. Interesting. And as you said, insulated, yes, also partly, I think, because they've been private institutions for longer than this country has existed in some cases and have defined themselves. And as, you know, our country, we decided not to have a national university. George Washington didn't think this was a good idea. We don't have a national university. We have many universities, about 4,000. What I really appreciate that you've gone to campuses and you've talked with students, with faculty, and then with First Amendment experts. One question I have Are those the people who really understand this issue, or should there be other people brought into the conversation? You represent such a wide range of writers. Would you only ask the ones writing about the First Amendment and the law? And I'm probably asking out of self-interest. I'm not a First Amendment lawyer, and I think about free speech a lot because I'm a writer. And I'm a teacher. I'm a parent. So in some ways, speech cuts across so many domains that the legal approach is one, but it may not be the only frame. I mean, that's very much the approach that we take. I mean, we think often in these discussions it's helpful to have someone with First Amendment expertise to sort of spell out, you know, what are the legal parameters within which, you know, the university is operating? What does the law say? And often people don't know. I mean, that's another thing. You know, we find students and even faculty are not very well educated about the permissible bounds of speech. What are the exceptions to the First Amendment? You know, what's the definition of harassment? or a threat. So having someone lay that out can be extremely useful to frame a conversation. But then, you know, for many of these debates, you know, the First Amendment is really almost irrelevant. You know, I think, you know, one of the most potent problems in terms of free speech right now is sort of speech versus speech. You know, I say something that maybe is uh, offensive or objectionable. I might put it out on Twitter. And, you know, within a matter of hours, I could have thousands of people raining down opprobrium on me, maybe putting my address or my phone number out there for the public to see, even in some cases sort of surrounding my house and bringing a mariachi band, uh, you know, to protest the lawyer who was so offensive in the deli in Manhattan last month. So, 
you know, and some of that's perfectly appropriate. I think a degree of social censure and ostracization for somebody, you know, who has broken the norms can be fair game. And, you know, a mariachi band is, you know, is, is a pretty friendly thing as opposed to, right. no, it's right. right. It's They're not, not a coming pitchfork. with weapons, right? Yeah, it's not a pitchfork. So, you know, but at the same time, I think sometimes that, that you know, speech can have a censorious effect and it can feel like certain topics affirmative action or abortion or the Israel-Palestine conflict, that it's risky to speak. You know, no matter what you say, you're probably going to offend someone. You know, your your tweet or your video is going to be available online forever. Whatever people say about you will be available online forever. And, you know, is it really worth it to wade into these debates? And I think for a lot of people, it's understandable. They decide to self-censor, just to kind of hold back, that it's just, it's not worth the risk. And I think that impairs our discourse. The First Amendment has nothing to say about that. You know, it's not a First Amendment problem. It's not something we can solve through the courts. And so, you know, it kind of goes back to where we started, which is, you know, we need to look to new kinds of solutions for some of this. So so if you can leave us with, in a sense you said much earlier, the consumers or people who read and listen and think. So what should people do, actually? And I ask you, starting out, so when you get up and have your morning coffee, you said the night before you worry about the attacks on the press. What should people do? A lot of people actually think, should I consume all the news? Should I listen to all of it? Should I participate more actively? Should I not tweet? Should I retweet? Should I ignore all of it? So what's your sense of what people should actually do? You know, I think one thing that's useful is to try to digest perspectives not your own and understand what other sides are saying about these debates. You know, I try to do that. I'll tune into Fox News or look at, you know, websites where I know they're coming from an ideologically different perspective. I think defending speech, you know, where people, even speech that may be kind of misguided. I mean, one term I don't like is microaggression because, you know, we, we know what that is. You know, these are slights that happen in everyday life that often derive from implicit bias or prejudice or a lack of forethought or understanding or conscientiousness. And it's a real problem. I mean, if you're on the receiving end, I absolutely understand why, you know, for example, students of color kind of get subjected to this all the time, why it's really bothersome. But it's the word aggression, because I think everybody acknowledges that, you know, most of the time we're talking about these incidents, they're, they are sort of unconscious. They're not intentional. The person's not trying to offend. You know, of course, there are deliberate offenses, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about microaggressions. I think we should talk about them as micro offenses and so that we focus on the person who's on the receiving end and what the experience is like for them. And then the person who does the speaking can kind of learn something and be corrected, but without being put in the position of, you know, you're the aggressor here. And I think trying to foster more tolerant attitudes towards speech so that we don't have people just retreating from public debate on certain topics because it's simply kind of too toxic and too dangerous. I think we need to support each other in going out on a limb sometimes, you know, recognizing that, you know, we may misstep, someone may say the wrong thing. If there's a genuine apology I think that needs to be taken seriously. I, I'm a little leery of people kind of becoming persona non grata in our public discourse, you know, for one offhand comment. It happens in the private sector, too. People get fired, you know, fired for a tweet, losing their television show. You know, in the case of Roseanne, I think, you know, people felt, look, it was a pattern of conduct. It was a show that was built around her and her persona. It was impossible to continue. But then you have someone like Reza Aslan, where, you know, the tweet had nothing to do with his show, uh, you know, and was sort of, you know, much less incendiary. He lost his show, too. I think it's in, you're bringing up a really important topic, microaggression versus microoffenses. I think that is another question of where people talk about power and they want to call it microaggression. They say, no, it's on the aggressor. It's on the person who's thoughtless or deliberate or participating in a system of, you know, bigotry that they're just so part of that they're not aware and I, I think you're right to say that the calling out has taken other dimensions because there's such power now on social media. So you can be called out by not four people or somebody in your room or you said it at a dinner, at a dinner party, but now it's 100,000 people calling you out. I also think it's interesting about that, that that is free speech in some ways when Roseanne Barr gets called out by a few hundred thousand people to ABC, they pay attention. If it had been before five people on her show and said, this is really offensive to me, I'm, you know, a grip or I'm a cameraman and this is, I can't believe she insults people like me all the time, but she's the star of the show. There was no power behind that. So power is both 
historical and sort of actual, and then also because of media. It's distributed in a new way. I think that's what's interesting. That, And the other part on microaggressions, I would just say, it's how discourse changes all the time and how we've learned to think and address people in new ways. I mean, I would not think of addressing my female students as girls. I wouldn't say uh, the guys and the girls in this room. They're young women. They're 18 years old. They're women. That is a totally shift. I think for 30 years ago, everybody, every professor would have probably said, yeah, the girls in my class. <laughs> and, and the, no, the right. women would have said, excuse me, I'm not a girl. And he would have said it to his colleagues also, who are 40 and 10-year professors. And they still say it. So in some ways, I think some things are what you're pointing out, that speech is policed in a kind of unprecedented way. That may be bad because people feel censored and feel worried and concerned. I sometimes think if they're so worried and concerned, then they probably have to learn something. Well, I agree. I mean, that's the problem. It's not a bright line. There's plenty of things, you know, and like now using gender neutral pronouns is sort of the version of, you know, what calling someone a girl, you know, 20 years ago. You know, some people feel, oh, that's ridiculous. I've always said this. And why you, you know, what's wrong with. He or she or, you know, why do I have to do something differently? And, you know, the answer is you do. I mean, society evolves. There are new norms and you've got to get with the program. So I think the conscientiousness can be a very good and necessary thing. And and it also can go too far. I think we have to hold both ideas in our head at the same time. And that's difficult to do. You know, I think... You know, there is an obligation on the part of, you know, the micro-offender to recognize, you know, that they're committing an offense and that, you know, there's something wrong with this and understand what it is and be willing to hear the feedback. I think if we can de-escalate some of these conversations, there's actually greater potential for somebody to hear the feedback and adjust and not be resistant or defensive or sort of unfronted and uncomfortable about it. And, you know, it may be even easier for the person who's in the awkward position of having to bring it up because that's not easy either. You know, that's the person who's on the receiving end. And it's it's an uncomfortable conversation for, you know, me to tell you, you know, you've just committed an act of aggression or or even that you've just offended me. That's not easy to say. And that's... Yeah, absolutely. And in universities and other contexts, if the younger people and people who are not in positions of authority, it's an act of courage to say the way you're addressing me is completely inappropriate. I think what's great about speaking with you, you are in an organization of writers, which I think writers actually give us new language. So in some ways, the whole point, the whole project is to maybe find ways and uh, in which we can conduct these debates that aren't so divisive or polarizing from the get-go. Right. And that's what we try to do. I, mean, I was going to say, we bring novelists, playwrights to the conversation, and they have all kinds of new insights, you know, words that they choose to use, metaphors that you know, I think are very necessary right now because the old paradigms, you know, the First Amendment doesn't give us all the answers. So I want to thank you, Suzanne Nossel, for uh, the CEO of Penn, the writer's organization, and recommend to everybody who's listening, you should get on the email blast. It's fantastic. I love what you send out every day. It's really incredible. daily alert on uh, rights and expression, the DARE. So you can sign up for it at our website at pen.org, pen.org. So do that and look up Suzanne Nossel's writings in the Washington Post and other places. Really been informative. So thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you.